Hey everybody, this is So Heidi, and you're listening to the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast. We all know that the fashion industry is brutally competitive and it takes loads of hard work to get ahead. The problem is that everyone's secretive and tight lipped about their ways. After working as a designer and educator for over a decade, I wanted to help break down those barriers and bring you valuable knowledge from industry experts, and this show is exactly where you'll find that. Whether you're trying to break into the fashion world, make yourself more marketable, launch your own label, or become a successful freelancer, we'll help you get ahead in the cutthroat fashion industry. This is episode 26 of the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast, and today I have a really fun guest on... This is Liz Segrin, and she's different than any other guest that I have had on. The reason is because she doesn't actually work in fashion, but she writes about fashion for Fast Company. If you've not heard of Fast Company, they're the world-leading progressive business magazine. Liz covers so many great stories about what's going on in the industry, and she has such an interesting perspective from the hundreds of interviews that she's done of various industry professionals, startup brands, and all sorts of amazing people working in fashion. In this week's episode, I turned the tables on Liz and interviewed her. In our chat, she shares her interesting perspective on workplace and retail trends, what that means for consumers and industry professionals like you and me, and how millennials have affected the shifts that we're seeing right now in the fashion industry. Now that the industry is saying, actually, this culture of exclusivity is not really working for us. Um, You know, we want to be more inclusive in terms of how we approach our consumer. I think that that inherently forces them to be a lot more inclusive and um, about about their hiring practices and about how they, they treat their own people. Before we jump into the interview, I have a quick favor to ask. If you enjoy this episode, one of the best ways you can say thank you and give back is by subscribing and reviewing the show on iTunes. It only takes a few seconds, but this small effort really helps the show grow and get discovered by more listeners. Visit sfdnetwork.com slash subscribe to do that now. Thank you so much. I'd really appreciate it. To access the show notes for today's episode, visit sfdnetwork.com slash 26. Now, on to the interview with Liz. Well, welcome, Liz, to the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast. I would love to have you start out by introducing yourself to everybody and let us know a little bit about what you do. Yeah, so I'm I'm Liz Segrin. I am a staff writer at Fast Company Magazine. Um, It's a a progressive business magazine that covers, um, you know, all the latest uh, and coolest startups and companies doing really innovative things. And my area of focus at the at the publication is fashion. So I get to um, stay on top of all of the latest things that are happening in the fashion world. And um, I spend a lot a lot of time looking into um, the really awesome uh, startups that are popping up in this space. So I think that I we're going to have a lot of, of fun things to talk about. Yeah, super cool. Okay, so I want to get to the startups, and I have that sort of in my notes. Um, but before we get to that, I want to talk about the article that actually prompted me to reach out to you. Um, so this was an article published a couple months ago, maybe. Um, I don't see the mm-hmm. date on it, but it's called Drugs, Wage Theft, and Boob Tape. Here's what it's really like <laughs> working in fashion. And this article, I shared this with my audience, and it got a lot of reaction. Um, I would assume you got a lot of reaction. Um, on your mm-hmm. side from this. And so I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that article, and I'll link to it in the show notes so everybody can read. Um, but I'd love for you to talk a little bit about some of the discoveries you made 
going through that article and like what it is really like working in fashion? You know, it's so interesting because um, there, I, when I started um, researching and, and writing stories about the fashion industry, the first thing that you hear about, and I think what the, the average consumer um, or the average person who buys clothes sees is all of this creativity and all of this amazing, um, you know, all, all of this amazing innovation that's happening in the industry. And that's sort of where people, um, that's, that's what people perceive about the industry. When I was researching um, and doing stories, I would sometimes talk to people who would mention things um, about how, how difficult and, and tough the industry was. And it was never very overt um, because often I was, you know, I'd be talking to people who were still working in fashion, who were still working in fashion or who, um, you know, or, or who didn't want to speak too uh, badly about their employers. Um, but there was always this, this undercurrent that things were like not quite right. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to, um, going to investigate this and I'm going to reach out to my base and, and ask people to share their stories with me um, off the record or, you know, without um, having to use their names. Mm -hmm. And suddenly I got this like massive outpouring, like so many people reached out to me mm -hmm. and wanted to tell me all, all kinds of stories. Um, the, the average story was about a young person who had all these dreams about working in fashion and started in the industry and it it was there were a couple of things that were that were very obvious. One was that they wouldn't get paid. Um, that, you know, this is an industry that often um, you know brings in young and impressionable um, you know workers, uh, and it doesn't pay them for a while. It wasn't paying them at all, so interns weren't making any money. Mm -hmm. That changed um, a little while ago when legislation changed, but still, I mean we're still talking about people who are entering the industry and, and getting paid something like $12 an hour, which is just not enough to live on in New York. Yeah. So that was one element of it. But in addition to the very low wages, um, there was this culture of abuse and it, and it was just, it was very consistent. Uh, there, there were these older, more established people in the industry who were very creative and had a lot of power and, um, it was very typical for these people to treat their underlings as disposable mm. and to treat them um, just very poorly. So to verbally abuse them, to expect them to work around the clock, um, just none of the none of the qualities that, that you know, of, of culture, of workplace culture that we're seeing in other innovative industries like technology where, you know, there, there's at least this conversation that's happening about, like, how do we make the workplace a comfortable one for our employees. That conversation just was not happening in fashion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, yeah. So it's, um, I mean, it was a tough read. I won't lie. Um, but I love that you don't sugarcoat it. You really just come out and it's this, this absolute transparency and this absolute honesty of like what's really going on behind the scenes in the industry. But you mentioned yeah. that there are signs of hope. And so one of the things I'd love to talk about with you today is, you know, you've been, been covering fashion for Five years? Am I, what what about timeline? No, it's, it's it's about it's about two years now. Two years. Okay, okay. My apologies. I, mm -hmm. I looked at something different. Um, but 
so these signs of hope, like one of the overlying things I want to touch on is, you know, what have you seen in the two years that you've been going through um, all these interviews with these different companies? And so I think we can look at it in a couple different ways. We can look at it. One is like there's this whole startup culture, which is growing and growing and growing. And we're seeing more and more of these smaller indie designers, these startup designers, um, breaking into this industry. And so what have you seen in terms of shifts between some of the startup designers, some of the more established brands where, from what I've heard in my experience, is where some of the the worst abuse goes on is some of these bigger name established brands. Um, I don't think we can say that as a blanket mm-hmm. statement, but I think those are some trends that, that I at least see. Um, and so what are you seeing mm-hmm. in the past two years of your experience? Any shifts in what's going on in this abuse and maybe these signs of hope for these designers? Yeah, there, there, I mean, one big thing that happened was um, lots of these interns that were not getting paid and they were working for fashion magazines and fashion brands um, spoke up and mm-hmm. they started bringing lawsuits to these employers, which, which was kind of a big deal because, uh, it, you know, it was the first time that that had happened in the fashion industry and that, you know, it made a, you know, a, it got a lot of press. Um, and it also helps to change the way that these businesses operate. So now fashion brands need to pay interns. Um, and, and that's, you know, and that's just one aspect of it. I mean, I think it was basically drawing attention to, um, to how these businesses were sort of not treating their, um, their entry level employees very well. And so I think that it started a larger conversation about that. So I think that that's one thing. And, and, and that's that, um, you know, younger employees, millennials and Gen uh, Z, they're not uh, just sort of accepting the status quo. And mm-hmm. that's really important because I think that part of what had been going on in this industry is that, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a relatively, you know, old and established industry, right, in the United States. Um, and the brands that these, that these young women were working for, most of them young women, um, these brands that they were working for, you know, they've been around for a long time. There are these patterns of behavior that were at work. And so to have a generation come in and say, no, we're not going to accept this. I mean, that's one important um, thing that happened. But there's also kind of these these other things that are happening. Um, you know, one is that the industry is sort of um, changing its approach uh, to things like beauty um, and and. So, you know, for and you know, everybody's aware of this, but for a long time, uh, fashion brands didn't really want to have anything to do with the plus size market. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing this big shift that's happening now where these brands are now opening up to, um, to trying to be more inclusive about um, the clothes that they're making. And I think that that is actually related to the way that the industry treats their employees because there was this culture in fashion where, you know, everything was so much about um, exclusivity, right? It was that the people that they would hire, you know, how attractive an employee was, all of these things were were just part and parcel of working in this industry. It was an industry where, you know, a lot of um, employees that they brought on were were wealthy because the only people who could afford to work for nothing, you know, had, you know, came from families that could support them. Mm -hmm. Um, There was this culture of only hiring, you know, model-esque people (laughs) um, and and all of that. Right. And so, so now that the industry is saying, actually, 
this culture of exclusivity is not really working for us. Um, you know, we want to be more inclusive in terms of how we approach our consumer. I think that that inherently forces them to be a lot more inclusive and um, about 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 their hiring practices and about how they they treat their own people. Um, and so, I think that the combination of do- those two things is giving some people in the industry hope that you know change change could be you know on the way. Yeah. Um, and so what do you see like happening within some of these startups and some of these younger, more progressive companies in terms of this inclusive exclusive when it comes to their employees and how people are being treated? Um, I think that that's, that's, that's the place where, um, I'm most hopeful. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, for one thing, um, startups are actually having a much bigger, um, place in the market than several years ago, I think, um, you know, the big established brands are, some of them are struggling, right? I mean, you think about yeah. several years before I wrote this article, I, I also wrote another story about how, uh, you know, the big American brands like um, Tommy Hilfiger and Ralph Lauren and Donna Karen, these brands that are sort of established and have been around for a long time and had enormous like employee bases those brands are, are sort of struggling to keep up. And what that's doing is that that's creating space in the market for all of these really cool, innovative startups that are really small, that are trying to approach the fashion industry differently. It's giving them uh, space and room to breathe and to, to, to do interesting work. And so in terms of, you know, workplace culture, I think that these, these younger um, designers are – uh, do have a totally different approach. Part of it is just that they're younger. So they're from, um, you know, the millennial generation. And mm-hmm. so they tend to be more, um, they tend to have a different approach to, to the workplace. Um, and, you know, in a lot of the data we're seeing, millennials um, have different values when it comes to working. Um, they really want uh, their jobs to be places where they're happy. You know, that's a really important value to, uh, to, to to younger employees, and so with millennials at the helm of, the, of these companies, I think there's just like an inherent concern about workplace culture that just isn't uh, true for more established companies. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a, that's a massive generalization, but you know, but in general, that that seems to be the trend. And so I think that that really is the, a huge bright spot for the industry. Yeah. Um, And that's fantastic. And I've been hearing a lot of the similar types of trends from other people that I talk to. I'm curious to know, Mm -hmm. and and I don't know if you, how much you can really answer this question, but I would be curious to just know your thoughts based on all the people you've talked to um, for your various articles. You mentioned, you know, some of these bigger companies struggle, um, have been struggling over the past few years, and there's all this doom and gloom in the fashion industry. You know, companies are going Mm -hmm. bankrupt, um, retail's dying, all, all these various headlines lines that we just see over and over. And and not that it's any excuse on any level to force someone to work for free or to, to absolutely pay them an, an unlivable wage. Um, but mm-hmm. how much do you think that some of this abuse is due to just general abuse and being a total just 
jerk and and being abusive because they can (laughs) because there's so many people lined up to work in this industry. It's so competitive. People are dying for these jobs um, versus Mm -hmm. these companies actually having real cash flow problems. And they're like, I can literally only afford to pay this much. Again, that's not an excuse to pay abusively low wages. Mm -hmm. But what do you what do you see or, or do you have any thoughts or opinions on that? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that um, that this culture existed far uh, longer than um, it's, it's, it's. These problems have been around for a long time, mm-hmm. even before the current retail apocalypse, as we're calling it. Right? Yeah. <laughs> um, it's it's just kind of how the industry has always worked, and I think that it's absolutely true that part of this was just a matter of the fact that it's an industry that's very glamorous. Um, that a lot of people want to work in, and there's just like this excess of supply of eager young people um, who want to work here. Um, it's, it's, I think th- that's really the problem, um, and it's, that's also coupled with the fact that, uh, you know, there are, there are lots of other industries where there are lots of people who are eager to work, the tech industry being one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's not just that there's this excess um, demand for these jobs, it's also that the industry itself, like people, the leaders in the industry weren't taking a stand and saying, you know, um, you know, we have all of this really amazing talent. You know, we're going to be respectful of, of these young people and, you know, create policies that ensure that their rights are protected. Um, it, it, was, it was just that the industry didn't care and, and wasn't taking a stand on it. Yeah. Um, so I, I really don't think it has much to do with the current retail uh, apocalypse. Yeah. It's just general, just abuse in general, because there are so many people sort of lined up and willing to work for um, peanuts. You know, I almost sometimes I almost think, um, and not to blame it on on us as as designers. You know, that's that's a role that I work in, but that on some mm-hmm. level, like it can become a self-perpetuating thing. And like you've said, the, the industry is shifting now because these millennials have put their foot down and said, no, we want a good work-life balance. We want a happy workplace. And so they put their foot down to do something about that. And then these companies that they've built mm-hmm. and they've started, they're implementing that within their own companies. So it's great that this, these sort of new generations have, um, have uh, initiated a big ch- change. Yeah, definitely. So, um, okay, so kind of shifting gears into those startup companies, um, you write a ton of articles, like you mentioned, on some of the progressive um, brands that are that are new and that are doing really unique and fun stuff in this industry, and kind of um, you know breaking some of the molds and and taking over um, a big portion of the fashion industry. What are you seeing in the past couple years as far as um, trends in some of these startup fashion? companies that's working like what what is it that you see within these small startup brands there's so many designers out there that want to do something that are trying to do something i mean it's still very competitive but what do you see that is working within all these various startups that you cover well i think that the everlane effect um is real so um you know as you know as as most of your listeners i'm sure know um you know everlane launched uh several years ago with this concept of radical transparency. So they gave the consumer um, a glimpse into the, the factories where they were making their products. But not only that, they also um, gave their their consumers insight into the pricing structure. So mm-hmm. they were very honest about, uh, you know, how much a garment cost to make and, um, and, and what they were selling it for so that, um, you know, the consumer could be 
um, comfortable that they weren't overpaying, that they weren't paying um, just for a label. Sure. Um, and so that was a great idea at the time. And what's really impressed me is that um, startups have basically accepted that as the status quo. So there's so many brands now that are launching, like Kuyana, um, like there is a bag company called Oliver Cabell, um, companies throughout you know, the fashion industry, that's just kind of how you have to do business now. So if you want to launch a startup, um, the consumer sort of expects you to tell us where you make your product. So like Jemmy, you know, the shoe company out of New York, you know, they give you a glimpse into the factories where they make their shoes in Italy. Um, and there's also this element of, you know, customers don't want to pay um, inflated prices anymore. For a long time, you know, people cared about status. And so you would get a bag with like a big label on it, whether it was like Chanel or, you know, or, or any one of these like luxury brands. And you, you were kind of okay with paying a lot of money um, for that brand name um, because you, it, cause it, it meant that you were getting good quality. Um, and these days that doesn't really apply anymore. Customers, um, you know, they want to pay, to, to pay uh, a fair amount for their product. And what that means is that you know, they're willing to pay for good quality and they're, you know, and they're not willing to pay much more than that, right? Much more than, than what is reasonable. Um, and so I think that that trend is, is really, you know, it's really impressive how one company has totally shifted the way that we think about buying products. Um, but the other big, big trend that I'm seeing um, has to do, and it's related to, to this issue of transparency, but, you know, I think that brands that are being very um, innovative about creating sustainable products um, are really winning. So one brand uh, that's very well known for this is Reformation out in L.A. Um, and Reformation, you know, is all about um, thinking about sustainability and making sure that, um you know, every product that they make is as sustainable as possible. You get a little report with, uh, with information about the impact that that garment has had on the environment. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's, you know, that's, and, but, but in addition to that, you know, the, the clothes themselves are really fun and sexy. They're not sort of like boring um, clothes for just like tree huggers, right? I mean, these are clothes that you'd want to buy and wear regardless. Um, so brands like that are really setting, you know, changing the narrative, right, for um, for other brands in the industry. I think that consumers care about the, the impact that fashion has on the environment. And uh, brands that are coming up now um, are, you know, are have to sort of be more aware of the impact that their um, their supply chain is having on the environment and be able to tell their their customer you know, that they're doing the best that they can and that they're trying to protect the environment in, in every way possible. Yeah. I love that. And so it's like not just this um, this consumer society that just wants this beautiful garment, but they want to really understand the story behind that product. They want to understand mm -hmm. where it came from, why the cost is what it is, um, that it was made in an ethical and sustainable manner. And so it's like mm -hmm. the, the consumer has shifted, and, and I don't know exactly how this happened. You know, Everlane obviously had a big influence on this, but the consumer has shifted to really care a lot more about the product. They don't want just a beautiful item. They want to know 
the whole backstory behind it, which is such a cool transformation in this industry. Yeah, definitely. And I think another big trend has been that, you know, for a while, fast fashion was king. Yeah. And um, brands like H&M and Zara um, and, you know, and like Forever 21, uh, all the way down to like Target, uh, you know, these were these were sort of the brands that young people were buying from. Um, and, and definitely, like, even in my generation, I'm 34, uh, you know, in my 20s, that was the norm. And I think that there's sort of been a little bit of saturation um, in terms of, like, the impact that fast fashion has had. I think that people really got tired of collecting um, cheap clothes that mm-hmm. they that they were that were disposable essentially mm-hmm. um and it's it's just people decided that that really um it wasn't it wasn't a good way to shop um it it didn't lead to really good quality garments um and and also um you know once news sort of you know once people became more aware that fashion is an incredibly polluting industry um, the second most polluting industry in the world, by some estimates, after the oil industry. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that all of that basically, you know, changed people's minds. And so consumers who were raised in a, you know, in a world of fast fashion, you know, are beginning to think, okay, you know, what what do I want um, when it comes to buying a dress or, or something or a shirt? Um, you know, I want, I want to know where this came from. I want to know the story behind it. And I also want to buy something that will last a long time that won't just end up in a landfill. Um, and so I, I really think that all of that has just really changed the way that we approach clothing. Yeah. Um, and, and so in addition to sort of buying something to last, buying something that was, that was made ethically or sustainably produced, understanding the trend or, or, um, seeing the transparency within the supply chain that these brands are now showing us. Um, what are you seeing in terms of people buying? So outside of those aspects, what are you seeing in terms of people buying for beauty or people buying to actually solve a problem and what these, some of these startup brands are offering? Is it just that they're doing these beautiful clothes and they are sustainable, they're transparent and they're made well to last a while? Or are these brands that you're seeing kind of make it in the startup scene are the, is, is the product that they're introducing fit all of those and they're also solving a problem, whether that be, you mm-hmm. know, and, and this could be a whole different conversation, but whether that be in the fashion tech space or whether it just be like this gap mm-hmm. in the market that no one's filling, um, are, they, are they being really mm-hmm. creative on that level or is it just beautiful clothing that happens to be sustainable, ethically made, and they're being transparent about it? So, yeah, I think that um, all the things that we've talked about so far have to do with sort of the execution of the product. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of the actual products themselves, I think that, um, yeah, I mean, I do think that there are lots of brands that are solving um, that are solving real problems and those brands are winning. Uh, one example that I can think of is um, this brand that I just wrote about called Dagny Dover. Um, it's a bag company um, started by three women uh, about three or four years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the bag industry is interesting, right? Because we see so many bags um, flooding the market every season. Um, you know, brands like Coach, um, uh, all the way all the way down, you know, through through the marketplace, you know, like um, Timbuktu and, you know, all, all these different 
brands, they're just like pumping out tons and tons and tons of product every season. Mm-hmm. And yet so many women can't find bags that work for them. <laughs> I mean, it's just this interesting issue because, uh, and, I, and I write about this all the time where, because um, every year I do an annual review of the best uh, work-life bags is, is what we call them, just bags that are really functional and that are also beautiful. Mm-hmm. But women struggle to find uh, one bag that can get them from the morning to the, to the evening. Um, and that's why when you stand on street corners in every major city, you see women going to work with like three bags. Um, <laughs> you know, like they have their like their beautiful, you know, leather bag, um, their designer bag. Then they have like a tote bag uh, with their like gym clothes in it. And then they have a separate bag for their lunch or their water bottle or whatever. Um, and so basically, you know, there were gaps in the market, right? Like there, there wasn't there wasn't a company that was thinking thoughtfully about how a woman lives her life and what what kind of bag she needs to get through the day. Um, so these these three women um, decided that they were going to fix this problem, and so they sat down and created very thoughtfully designed bags. Um, and so these bags are, you know, they're beautiful. They're made from leather and other materials, uh, depending on the price point you want to pay. Um, but they just have really, you know, simple things that lots of other bags don't have. So the bags have like like padded slots for your that are zippable for your laptop. Mm-hmm. They have um, a, a spot for you to uh, put your water bottle that's therm- that's like kind of a thermal uh, case so that your water stays cold during the day. There's um, there's a ton of different pockets, and they're not just like blindly throwing pockets all over the place. There's like a spot where you know, that makes sense for, like, your phone. It's close to the top of the bag, so your, your phone doesn't get lost, like, all the way at the bottom. There is a, a keychain in every single bag so that, um, you know, you're not, like, there in the middle of the night, like, digging through your purse for your, for your, for your keys. And um, so just, just talk about problem solving. I mean, it was just, like, all they had to do was sit down and think about, you know, the problems they had with their bags. And the, the brand has been doing really well. It's been growing really fast. Um, and, you know, just producing like, you know, like tons of, you know, really innovative products. So I, you know, that's the kind of thing where, you know, clearly beauty is really important um, and clearly having transparency in your supply chain, all of that is really, really important. But, you know, even though the fashion industry is so busy with so many companies, big and small, I think that a lot of the time, you know, there, there, there are these like blind spots where companies are just not, really addressing the needs of the consumer. And I think that brands that are thoughtfully designing products to meet these needs can still win. Yeah. It's interesting because as much as it is such a saturated industry, like you said, there are still these holes. I mean, just speaking of bags, I searched, and this was while I was living in New York City, so I had access to pretty good shopping. I searched for six months Mm -hmm. to find a laptop bag that didn't look like a dorky laptop Mm -hmm. bag, but was actually not just beautiful, but also like really functional. Um, And I had some requirements that, that needed to work for me, but it took me a really long time to find it. So I think that even as much as there is so much saturation and so much competition, and there are still these unique little niches and holes and gaps in the market that need to be filled and need and, and still have problems to be solved. And there's room for um, simple innovation. I mean, this is like you said with this product, they just put the pockets in the right place. Like they're they're not doing any fancy technology here. This is just really strategic thinking and and engineering a good product. Um, totally. And um, there, I, I see so many examples of this. Um, in the workwear market, um, 
you know, for a long time, it was really, really hard for women to find um, really high quality clothes that were thoughtfully designed. I mean, so on the one, one end of the market, there was like theory, um, you know, and, and brands like that, that were pretty expensive, um, very well made, but pretty expensive. And then on the lower end of the market, you were, you know, you were going to places like um, Ann Taylor and, and other brands like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, lots of women were struggling to find uh, pieces that they could afford that looked good and that had all of the qualities that they needed to sort of, um, you know, get through a work week. Um, and so I'm seeing a lot of activity in this space just because there was such a big wide open space here. So like um, uh, a brand like M.M. Lafleur, which is also based out of New York, um, they basically created these these pieces of clothing that were really uh, just well-designed. They were designed to make the body look good. Um, their designer thinks a lot about how fabrics fall on the body, things like that. Um, but there was also a, a focus on, you know, using fabrics that didn't wrinkle so that when you went on a business trip, your, uh, your clothes didn't just get totally wrinkled by the time you reached your destination. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of the clothes are machine washable, so you don't have to spend you know, weeks out of the year taking your stuff to get dry cleaned, just simple things like that. You know, it was, it was not like a huge uh, cataclysmic shift in, in what they were doing. Um, but these little, these little um, things that they were doing to make sure that the clothes uh, worked better for women have, have had a massive impact. And it's another brand that's doing really, really well. Yeah, that's so great to hear that just some some extra thought going into how the product's designed, why you chose that fabric, you know, what is how does that really affect um the end user can have such a big impact and can put your brand on this completely different trajectory. It doesn't have to be this insanely crazy advancement or anything. It's just some thoughtfulness put into the initial design um and selection of materials. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, and I'm also seeing this a lot in the um, in the lingerie and underwear um, market. Mm. Um, that was another market that was ripe for disruption because the main, you know, and still the the, the biggest player in that market is Victoria's Secret. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, it, Victoria's Secret is a you know it's a very powerful brand. It, it produces uh, a lot of of you know the bras that America wears, um, but. So, you know, there are brands that are creating, you know, better fitting products, brands like Third Love um, that are just thinking a lot about design. Um, but I think just sometimes it's not just about the product itself. It's also how the brand is choosing to speak to the consumer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a brand like Lively, which which is another startup that launched recently. Um, and they're I mean, partly, you know, they, they, they design bras that are that, that fit comfortably, but part of what they were doing that was different was they were just talking to the consumer differently. So, you know, Victoria's Secret was always leading with sexuality and, um, you know, like you think about Victoria's Secret and the big thing that they do is they have this fashion show with these, like, um, you know, of these, these naked women going on stage in this very glamorous show with all mm-hmm. these like, angels. Or Victoria's yeah, the Secret angels. angels. <laughs> totally. Um, but, you know, Lively said, you know, what if we created bras that um, that weren't sort of, what if we spoke to the consumer in language that wasn't uh, infused with sexuality? What if we talked about uh, comfort and empowerment and, you know, 
feeling good in your own body? Like, what if that was the message? And so they've gone out with, um, like, a very different kind of, like, approach to talking about um, bras. And it's not it's not to say that their sexiness isn't part of the discussion, mm-hmm. but it's, it's basically, like, the gaze has shifted, right? So it's not, like, you, you're not looking sexy because a man thinks that you're sexy. You're, you're choosing to be sexy because, because sexiness is something that, you know, is basically, it's like, it's for yourself, right? Like feeling good about your body, you know, and, and feeling um, sexually alive. Like that's not necessarily something you need to do for a man. Um, and that shift in language has been so attractive to a whole generation of younger consumers, I think. Yeah. Um, and so I think that brand has done well just by talking about the product differently. Yeah. Okay. So that's great. I mean, again, like little simple things. I, I don't know about you, but I, I can't look at like a runway show of these angels and feel like that's that's not very relatable for me as a consumer. Um, no. I'm no. like, I, that's not me. That's not what I look like. Um, it's just I don't really connect with that. But um, comfort and empowerment, I mean, those are all things that, that are very attractive and do connect with me. And so I think, like you said, just some of these simple shifts, simple shifts in the thoughtfulness of how the product's designed and then how you actually package that up and present it to your audience and market it, um, the dialogue that you have and the words and the conversation that you choose to have with your audience can have an insane impact. Um, so I love those two really, really simple totally. things. Um, so taking it somewhere a little bit more um, advanced, a little bit less simple, what are you seeing in the fashion tech space um, that's working over the past mm-hmm. couple years? So fashion tech meaning how like the, the actual uh, the actual products or in how they're being sold like so like digital technology. Um, I would say more in the product. So for example, I interviewed recently Billy Whitehouse um, who just launched her Naughty X line, which is a yoga legging that's got I don't know the technology inside of it to be honest. Um, so I, I might mm-hmm. you know mess up on the words here, but it's got some technology built into it that gives you subtle cues as you go through your yoga practice to just help adjust and align your body a little bit better. So if you're practicing at home and you're going along to a video or something, it just gives you these subtle like pulses throughout the legging. Um, Mm -hmm. And and she feels very strongly, I'll I'll be totally transparent, fashion tech is not a space I really keep up on. um, And I really Mm -hmm. have a pulse on. But, you know, she and I chatted and and she feels very confident that, you know, fashion is just the next space for our clothes to become smart. You know, in 20 years from now, like all of our clothes are going to be smart. Um, And so I'm curious to know, on the technology side, like technology that's actually built into the product, what are you seeing? I mean, I think it started out, um, you know, years back with a lot of wrist type of stuff, like watches and bracelets and jewelry. But now some of these brands are building it actually into the product. And so I don't know, you know, how many brands you've talked to or how many brands you've covered within your writing that are doing something on the fashion tech side and what your thoughts are and how that's mm-hmm. changed over the past two years and what you see maybe coming down the pipeline. Yeah, I think I yeah I I, I wrote a little um, story about those um, about those yoga pants. I thought that they were so they were so interesting. <laughs> but honestly, I, I do feel like this is um, it's kind of early days yet um, in the world of um, of technology in fashion. Um, so what I would say is that I think uh, what we are seeing a lot of is a lot of really great fabric innovation. So a lot of technology, um, thanks in part to the athleisure movement. So all these brands that were working really hard to develop fabrics that were great for um, sports, um, 
all of that innovation is now entering um, the mainstream uh, clothing market. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, like for a while, like Lululemon was kind of, and, and other brands like that were at the cutting edge of coming up with clothes that were moisture wicking and that, um, that, uh, had, that had all kinds of interesting ventilation and uh, that were that were exceedingly comfortable and that were also machine washable, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, what I think is really cool is that um, all kinds of brands are now incorporating those technologies into their their clothing. So this this company called Project Gravitas, um, it's a it's a women's workwear brand. They recently launched a collection of um, work you know, work clothes, so like shift dresses and wrap dresses that use fabric that would ordinarily be in a, um, you know, in like yoga pants, basically. Mm -hmm. So these clothes are extremely comfortable. They're moisture wicking. So you can get through like a really hot day in New York um, (laughs) without sweating and like without feeling gross at the end of the day, things like that. So so that's one level uh, of fabric innovation. Um, you know, and, and there are other interesting things that are happening, like fabrics that are moisture or uh, temperature regulating. Mm-hmm. So there are more and more companies that are coming up with um, garments that basically keep you cool when you would when your body is heating up and keep you warm um, when um, the temperature drops outside. Um, really cool um, technologies that are doing that kind of thing. But in terms of... Um, you know, like essentially like wearable tech. Um, so as you were saying, the things that were originally like found on wrists. Yeah. Um, I think that we're still sort of in early days there. I've, I've seen a couple of interesting examples of this at work. Um, there's a jacket that Levi's recently put out um, that it made in conjunction with Google. Um, that's like an interesting, it's an interesting application of, of wearable technology. So what happens is you wear this jacket and at your wrist, there's a little button that you can tap. Um, and the idea is that um, it's for commuters. So it's for, for people who like, get to work um, on their bicycle, um, you know, on their bicycle. Um, and it's, it's a denim jacket uh, that looks just like any other denim jacket that Levi's would make. But what it does is that as you're going along on your bike path, um, it gives you instructions about where you're supposed to go. So it works in conjunction with your phone so that, um, you know, if you're supposed to go right or left, it basically signals that to you. So you don't have to take out your phone uh, when you're biking to figure out where you're supposed to go. Mm-hmm. Now that, that I think is an interesting um, application of the technology because I think part of the problem is that, you know, you have all, we're beginning to see various types of technology, but we don't, we don't know exactly the best application for them. Um, like it, there's, there's no point in just like incorporating technology for technology's sake. Right. Right. Um, right. So, so in this case, what I liked about the, this was that this is actually solving a problem. There are lots of people in places like San Francisco who bike everywhere and who have, have trouble figuring out where to go and have to take out their phone. This is yeah. solving that problem for them. Yeah. Um, but there are lots of examples of technology that's, being incorporated into garments that like basically it, it's hard for me to understand whether it's like really that necessary. Um, like there was this one um, jacket that I saw um, that basically uh, can make you feel like you're being hugged um, if you're having a bad day. Um, I don't know if that's necessarily <laughs> something that everybody really wants out of their high tech uh, jacket. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think we're basically we're at like the first wave, right? Like with all the technologies being developed, and I think we're we're slowly beginning to see how how it can be applied. Um, and I think there's 
so much room for new designers to try and figure out how to use these um, use these new technologies in ways that actually serve a need. Yeah, it's inter- it's an interesting space, and I think it's one that can very easily be um, become gimmicky or just like you said, technology for technology's sake. Versus b- again, going back to that, being really, really thoughtful about what you're designing and does this really serve the end customer, and um, you know, how does this benefit them, and is this something really functional for them? Versus, am I just doing it for technology's sake? Yeah, totally. Exactly. Mm. Um, awesome. Really, really cool. And some really fun insights on everything that's going on in the industry. Uh, Liz, super, super great to chat with you. Um, I would love to end with the question that I ask everybody at the end of the interview. And um, that is, what is one thing nobody ever asks you about and I'll say this, writing about the fashion industry as opposed to working in the fashion industry. Um, so what is one thing that nobody ever asked you about writing about the fashion industry that you wish they did ask you? I think, you know, I think one thing, so, you know, what people always ask me is, you know, is like, how do you like fashion week? And <laughs> people are always interested in like that part of what I do. And it's true. I do, you know, I do attend fashion week. I do, um, you know, sometimes go to these shows. Um, but the thing that I actually care about, and I and I and I, I'm interested in brands that also care about this, is brands that are really trying to serve um, the rest of the country, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, you know, I, I'm interested in you know the up and coming like hippest brands that are out there. But I'm also interested in what brands like Walmart are doing, right? Or like brands like Amazon are doing in the fashion space because. Really, you know, what's interesting to me about fashion is not beautiful clothes. What's interesting about to me about fashion is that it's really tied into culture, and it's it's tied into, you know, the fabric. Uh, not to not to use a pun here, but into the <laughs> fabric of our everyday lives, right? I'm interested in how um, fashion, you know, has to do with how we represent ourselves, self representation. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in how. Uh, the fashion industry is, you know, impacts like su- global supply chains, um, and and how you know the fashion industry is changes and how we approach the fashion industry could could change how polluting the industry is. Yeah. And so, to me, all of those questions they're far more relevant when we're talking about you know the swath of uh, American consumers that are like kind of in the middle of the country um, and not just like what's going on in Fashion Week. Um, so to me, like, what I wish people would ask me is not like, oh, what do you think about, you know, like this year's New York Fashion Week? I I'm, I would much rather ask, you know, be asked a question about, like, what is some person, like, in the middle of Florida or, or Nebraska? Like, what is their relationship with fashion? Because I think that that question actually has a far more interesting answer. That's so interesting that you say that because um... – I've talked to many designers in New York City who are like absolutely terrified to leave New York City because they feel like there's no fashion anywhere else. I mean, they work in the industry and they just they it's it's maybe because they were born and raised there and that's all they know. Um, but they're like terrified to leave New York City that like 
oh my gosh, there's no fashion going on anywhere else. And there are so many brands and so many companies. And of course, obviously all these people, everybody has to wear clothes um, that are located in all these other places. So I love that you bring up the relevance of that. And then it's not just about fashion week and what's going on in New York City, but it's about what's going on in the middle of the country too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, mm. And in, in some ways, that consumer is far more important because that is the average consumer. And that's yeah. the person who's going to be ensuring <laughs> that your brand sticks around. So that's, that's, that's who I, I want people to pay attention to. Yeah, fantastic. I love that. Um, great, Liz. Can you please share with everybody where they can find you online? Sure. Um, find me on Twitter at Liz Seagrin. Um, that's my handle. But also sign up for my weekly newsletter. It's called Moving the Needle. Um, you can find uh, a link to where to sign up uh, right on my Twitter page. It's pinned there. Um, awesome. So definitely connect with me. Awesome. And I will put a link to that in the show notes for everybody to connect. This was so much fun chatting with you. I really appreciate your time and, and everything that you have to share with us today. Thank you so much, Liz. Thank you. Thank you so much. Have a great rest of your day. If you'd like to learn more about any of the resources mentioned in today's episode, visit the show notes at sfdnetwork.com slash 26. And since you made it this far, you must have liked the episode. Did you know that the best way you can say thank you and give back is by subscribing and reviewing the show on iTunes? It only takes 60 seconds, but this small effort really helps the show grow and get discovered by new listeners. Visit sfdnetwork.com slash subscribe to do that now. I'd really appreciate it. And thanks as always for your support.